0: So Mike Anderson was 36 years old, married with four kids. He owned a contracting business that he started himself. He volunteered at his local church, and he even coached his son's football team. On one July morning at 6 a.m., Mike woke to the sound of hard knocking at the door, the kind that startles you up out of bed. And he heard, this is the state marshal. Open up or it's coming down. And when he opened the door, eight men with shields, helmets, AR-15s came in to arrest him. And Mike said, hey, you've got the wrong guy. And the marshal said, no, you're the right guy. Do you remember 13 years ago? Well, when he said that, his heart sunk because he remembered. Of course he remembered but he didn't want to believe that his past had caught up to him. You see, 13 years ago, he and his friend held up a Burger King manager making a night deposit. See, Mike had gotten caught up with the wrong crowd. I mean, even prior to that night, Mike had no prior convictions. He had a full-time job at an AT&T. The robbery wasn't even his idea. He was, he was just along for the ride. And it didn't matter that it was just a BB gun. It didn't matter that he never held it. What mattered was that he was there. So he was arrested, tried, and convicted to 13 years of prison. But during the trial and the appeals process, he was out on bail. And due to a clerical error, the warrant for his arrest was never issued. And so even though he was arrested, tried, and convicted, no one ever came for Mike. You can imagine him sitting in his house waiting for the police to show up to take him to prison. And days of waiting turned to months. And Mike decided he wasn't just going to wait around, that he was going to live each day like it was a gift and turn it around. So Mike went back to school. He became a master carpenter. He started his own business and became a dedicated family man. And on the day that Mike should have been released from prison, 13 years later... The Missouri Department of Corrections realized their error. Mike wasn't in prison. There was no one to release. And so they issued the warrant 13 years late to pick up Mike. See, during the years that Mike was out, when he should have been in prison, Mike redeemed his life. He became a model citizen. And as Mike went to jail, the news reports of his story started to spread. Thousands of people started signing petitions to release him saying, listen, he is no longer a danger or threat to society. And to arrest him now actually violates the constitutional amendment to due process. Even the night manager from the Burger King advocated publicly for his release. And after almost a year of litigation, the judge ultimately agreed and he was released from prison as a free man to no longer have to look over his shoulder. His, his story was featured in news articles. There was even a, uh, an episode of This American Life on NPR. See, we're drawn into stories like this because it's a story of redemption where unlikely circumstances give a man a second chance, a chance to turn it all around. And that's what we have here in today's passage. In Joshua chapter 2 and and, and chapter 6, it's another story of redemption. You see, Rahab's story is about a woman on the fringe of society who, apart from God's grace, we should never even have known about. Without God entering in, we would never even know her story. But that's how grace works. See, grace shows up in unlikely ways and in unlikely places to bring redemption And that's just a packed word that means salvation from judgment, forgiveness from sin, and the chance to write a new story. This morning, we're going to see how Rahab's faith in God produced a courage to risk it all and to request salvation. And we'll see how her faith ultimately led not only to her own redemption, but to our redemption as well. So this morning, we're going to see Rahab's risk, we'll see her request in her redemption. Now before we jump into the text in chapter two, because we're kind of jumping into a book that we've not studied before, let me set the scene with some context. You see, the nation of Israel at this point has actually never lived in Israel. Now they're about to cross the Jordan River and enter into this promised land, this land that God has promised to give them for centuries. And now the time has come. Now this generation, you have to know, they grew up as kids wandering around in the desert for 40 years because their parents refused to believe that God would give them the land that he promised them. You see, their parents was the Exodus generation, the generation that was delivered out of captivity, out of the hands of Pharaoh. They saw God bring the Egyptians down to their knees. The most powerful empire of their day was brought to its knees, and yet that generation failed to believe that God would give them the promised land. And so this new generation is raised up, and they're ready to enter in. They've buried their parents. They've buried Moses, and now they're following this new leader named Joshua. And the time has come for them to do what their parents were too afraid to do and enter the land. See, their parents lacked the faith, and so if you're reading this story, you're wondering, will they have the faith to enter the land? Now, the only problem is that the Canaanites stood in the way. They lived there, and this people group would not give up their land without a fight. Now, at this point, I have to address a common objection that often uh, is landed against the goodness and justice of God here, because many people would ask, why would a good loving and just God, order the killing of the Canaanites by the Israelites? And I think it's a great question. It's a good question. It's something that we have to answer and address. It's not you're going to just go away by sweeping it under the rug. And it's a massive question. People have written entire books on it, and I don't have that kind of time today. So I do want to address a couple things that I think will help us to start engage with that, and we're going to link some videos in the weekly sync that deal with a little bit more uh, fully. But the first thing we need to realize that this is not murder, this is not ethnic cleansing, nor is it genocide. You see, this this is nothing to do with race. This has nothing to do with ethnic superiority. This is not saying, God's not saying, you are the better superior race, and so you need to wipe them off the face of the planet. That's not what's going on. In fact, the Bible tells us that this is God executing justice and judgment. Now, we hate those words. In our society, just the mention of them makes us uh, uh, angry inside. But He's God. He actually has the right and the responsibility to judge and bring justice. And all of us feel that way. When, when we've been sinned against in a grievous way, that pit, that feeling that something has been taken from me and justice needs to be done, you have that feeling because you're made in the image of God who feels that exact same way. And it would not be just for God to let rampant sin go unpunished. See, in the case of the Canaanites, history tells us that they were a violent and bloodthirsty people. They practiced child sacrifice, and they even incorporated um, weird sexual practices in their temple worship. Now, this doesn't mean that they were the worst human beings that ever lived on the face of the planet, but it doesn't mean that they were innocent either before a holy God. You see, there is this certain corporate moral threshold that a people can cross, and when they do, there's a point where God says, enough, and he does bring judgment. And here we see God moving in a pronounced, large-scale way. It's startling, and it's actually supposed to be. It's meant for us to go, wait a minute. God takes sin seriously. He's not Grandpa Joe. He's just like, it doesn't matter. That's not who God is. Now, you might be asking, why did they receive judgment and Israel received mercy? I mean, if you look at their storyline, you realize these aren't a perfect people either, right? And you'd be right to ask that question. The reality is, both nations have sinned. And I don't know why the Canaanites receive judgment and the Israelites receive mercy. A lot of times, the answer to our biggest questions of why is, I don't know. It would be wrong for me to make up an answer in the place of clear biblical truth. I don't know everything. And so sometimes the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. The Bible doesn't say why he chose to extend undeserved mercy to Israel and why he chose to extend deserved judgment to the Canaanites. But we should remember this, the fact that God saves anyone, the fact that God would extend grace and mercy to any of us is an act of grace. Unless you think Israel is never judged, keep reading. They get their just desserts as well. When they fall away, when they succumb to idol worship, when they practice child sacrifice, God brings judgment on them too. That's why this isn't about ethnicities and race. This is a matter of sin. God is actually right to judge sin. It's his prerogative to extend mercy and forgiveness to those who seek it. And so how are we to respond like that? Our response is to be one of sobriety in regard to our own sin to beg God and ask for his mercy and forgiveness. We shouldn't live as entitled, prideful people. Christians should be the most uh, gracious, the most thankful, the most repentant and humble people because we realize we are just beggars asking for scraps off the table. Okay, back to the story. So Jericho is this heavily walled and defended city. It it presented a massive uh, roadblock to them receiving and inheriting their promised land. Now, Joshua is given assurance by God that he will give them victory. But instead of giving Joshua a battle plan, God says, I'm going to give you my word. I'm gonna give you my presence. Look what he says in chapter one, verse nine. He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. No strategy, no battle plan, just I will be with you and that is enough. And so God tells them to go and prepare and get ready because in three days you're going to cross over the Jordan River and you're going to go into the land. So Joshua, as a good general, is thinking, okay, we're about to go. We're, we're getting things prepped up here. I'm going to go ahead and send two spies sneak into Jericho and see if they can't bring back some good intel on what's going on so we know what to expect. Now, here's where we pick up the story in chapter 2. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, a spy, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Okay, so the two spies, they make their way into Jericho and they find lodging at the local brothel. Now, if you grew up in church, maybe you were in Sunday school, and when they told that story, they always told you Rahab's an innkeeper, right? You had the whole flannel board thing going on. That's to like G-rate this thing. No, 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 no. Rahab was a prostitute. Men stayed at her establishment, but for the price of a bed, it came with a woman between the sheets. That's the kind of joint that she's running here. Now, Rahab's the kind of woman that everyone uh, talked about, but nobody talked to. Men would knock on her door at night, and they'd turn their back on her during the day. Even in this pagan culture, she would have been seen as a social outcast, a moral leper, and it's easy for us to hear the word prostitute and stand in judgment over her today. But I want us to consider for a moment, how did she end up there? We don't, doesn't tell us, we don't get her backstory, we don't really know. But if we look at history, if we look at some of the common causes that lead to this, we can start asking questions like this. Maybe she was sold into it. Maybe she was forced into prostitution and now she's under the heavy hand of the local pimp. Maybe she went down this route because of her family's poverty, and she just saw there's no other way to help provide for my family. If I don't do this unwanted and demeaning profession, my family's going to starve. See, these were very common reasons that forced women into these unwanted and demeaning professions. And guess what, guys? Not only was it common then, It's far too common today. In fact, historians and social anthropologists will tell us that in the ancient world, much like today, poverty is the most common cause of prostitution. It's what leads uh, and and fills sex trafficking. It's what contributes to it. So don't think Rahab is this high-end escort who is using her body to pay for some lavish lifestyle. That's not Rahab. It's far from it. This is a woman who in all likelihood is here not by choice, but by force, either externally as a trafficking victim or due to poverty. Now, we can't be certain about this. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I want us to give her the benefit of the doubt this morning so that we don't write her off. It also begs the question, what are the spies doing there? Why why, why is their first stop The local brothel. I mean, are they mixing business with pleasure? Now, I think the answer is no, and here's why. I don't think they were morally compromised. If you do a little more digging and thinking about what these cultures were like, you'll realize that I think they stayed there because it was the only place they could go in a city that was already suspicious of them. You see, Jericho knows Israel is encamped on the other side of the Jordan and they've heard stories about their God and they're suspicious and they would have stuck out like a sore thumb. They don't have a mole on the inside. In this culture, there's no best Eastern to get a room. This is the kind of place, that was a joke, best Western, best Eastern, all right. It was a good one. All right, here we go. This is the kind of place where people come and go and people don't ask a lot of questions, right? It's a place where you can lay low and gather some information and bring back to Joshua. Just like we give Rahab the benefit of the doubt, I want to give the spies the benefit of the doubt this morning. Look at verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now we find out real quickly their cover is blown and they're detected. Maybe there was an anonymous tip line, but the king knows about where they are. So the king comes to Rahab, the men do, and they say, Bring out the spies. We know they're in there. Now if Rahab is a good patriot, She'll turn them over without question. And she also knows that if she doesn't, that they're going to bust in, do what they need to do, find them, kill them, and kill her as well. Look at verse four. But the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men did come to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went, Pursue them quickly, and you'll overtake them. See, Rahab knew who they were. She knew enough to know that eventually people would start talking, and eventually there'd be a knock at her door. So she takes preemptive action, and she hides the spies. And when they come and start asking questions, she knows she can't outright lie and say that they've not been here. She can't say they were never there. So she says, yeah, it's true, now that you mention it, I did see those guys, but you're you just missed them. They've left. They snuck out the gate. And if you hurry up, you can probably catch them. It's the perfect cover story. It gives them no reason to come in and search because they know every passing minute they're getting farther and farther away. And so they, they run out and go try to catch up with the two spies. So as quickly as the soldiers come, they leave and go and pursue the spies on a fool's errand. You see, Rahab in that moment risked everything, her very life, to save the Israelites from certain death. If she's caught in the lie, it's over for her. And not only that, think about it. In that moment, she becomes a traitor to her own people, doesn't she? Her risk is not motivated by selfish ambition. She's not thrill-seeking. See, in our culture, when we talk about the word risk, we often think of this kind of thrill-seeking. That's not what's going on. In the Bible, risk here is driven by faith. It's a self-denial for the sake of others. This kind of faithful risk is a self-denial for the sake of others. It's not do what you can do to get yourself ahead. In the Bible, faithful risk is to purposefully make yourself vulnerable, which makes you liable to spiritual, physical, verbal, emotional harm for the sake of of others. And that's exactly what Rahab does. She puts her own life on the line. She hides and protects the man at high risk to herself. She knows the guards will kill her and them, but she also knows she's got this deep, pervasive sense that these guys are on a mission from the one true and living God. Something is fueling this risk. Something has changed Rahab. And like a good writer, the narrator hasn't revealed yet what's behind all of this risk. Let's look at the next section to see her request. We'll see what's driving it. Look at verse 8 with me. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord. Has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. See, Rahab goes to the men on the roof to let them know hey, the coast is clear, they've left. And she tells them she knows that the Lord has given them this land. She can already see what's about to happen. See, the the Canaanites have heard about how their God delivered them out of slavery, how he dried up the Red Sea, how he allowed them to cross. He heard about how God gave them victory more recently over the Amorites. And the whole city is in this panic, this stir, because they know that the God of Israel is on the move. Rahab knew that spiritual and physical upheaval was about to sweep through Jericho. How did she know that? I mean, we know she's savvy. She just turned away the the king's men at her door. She's probably up to speed on politics. But I want us to consider the reality that Rahab started to believe in the God of Israel. Not just be panicked about him, but started to believe that there were some seeds of faith in Rahab. And when the spies showed up at, their, at her door and she saw that they were men of Israel, it sealed the deal for her. She knew that God was going to use her. And those seeds of faith began to grow and it led her to take action. Look at verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath This is Rahab still talking. This is her profession of faith. What might have been uncertain before is clear now. She believes. First of all, she uses the personal name of God. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is God's personal name. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. This isn't the generic term for God, but this is his personal name. Covenantal name. It's a name that implies belief and trust. When you use that name, you're saying, I believe in you. She rejects her tradition. She rejects her gods, and she makes a bold proclamation. Yahweh, not Baal, is God. No other false gods. Yahweh is the one true and living God. He is God in the heavens and on the earth below. He is God and God alone, full stop that's what she's saying. Did you know her confession when she said God is God in the heavens above and the earth below? It comes up two other times in scripture. The two people who say it are Moses and King Solomon. Like you can't get more Jewish heavyweight than that. And she just added her name to the group. Moses, King Solomon, and Rahab. What an unlikely triad. I mean, this woman is an outsider by every possible category that you can imagine. First of all, she's a woman. In this culture, she's a gender outsider. She's a Canaanite, their mortal enemy. She's a moral outsider because she's a prostitute. And she's a resident of the city that is on the chopping block. You can't get more outsider than that. But now, she has just numbered herself among the faithful. You know, she shows up again later in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, Verse 30, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This whole chapter in chapter 11 is like the most faithful people in all the Bible. Rahab makes the cut. The writer of Hebrews has no problem naming her as one of great faith, faith that motivated her actions. The book of James, we just finished going through it. It says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 25. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Both of these verses are saying that Rahab had faith, and not just any faith, but faith that should actually be an example to us. Her belief was risky. It would cost her everything. She risked her life. And in turning away from her false gods of Canaan to the living God of Israel, she was saying, Yahweh is my new identity. I'm no longer a Canaanite. I'm no longer a Baal worshiper. I am a child of God. I will no longer be defined primarily by my nationality or by some false religion. I am a child of God. And after she drops that orthodox confession on them, she makes a request. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She says, guys, I believe God is on the move. I've dealt kindly with you. Now please deal kindly with me and not just me, but my family as well. See, Rahab's not looking out for number one. She's looking to redeem her family as well. And look what they say to her in verse 14. The men said to her, Our life for yours, even to the point of death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. See, the spies not only grant her request, but did you hear it? They give her a promise. They say, Our life for yours. For yours. That's the heart of the Christian message. Their gratitude led them to bind themselves to her. And in this moment, this outsider is transformed into an insider. They treat her like you would treat your brother or your sister. We guarantee your life and your family's life, and we seal it in our own blood. Look at verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, all your household. If anyone goes out of the doors to your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood will be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we'll be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have made us swear. And then Rahab said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They said, look, get everyone you want saved into your house and we're gonna mark your house as a safe house, but we can't guarantee anything beyond that. Get them all inside. In order to mark the house, take this scarlet cord that they find And they say, tie it in the window. It will differentiate your house against others so that when the city walls are breached and the attack comes, all the soldiers of Israel will know this house is to be protected. This house is to be kept safe. Now, much more than just a practical marker, the scarlet cord has all kinds of symbolism in the Bible. You see, in the Old Testament, the color scarlet is associated with Uh, Promiscuity and prostitution, and even eroticism. You can read through the Bible and hear that. In fact, in our own day, the color red has had a long connection with the sensual. Just think of Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Or for the music lovers, consider the police, Roxanne. You don't have to put on that red light, walk the streets for money, right? You don't care if it's wrong or if it's right, right? The red connotes sensuality to us. This cord isn't a random household object just lying around either. This was probably hung in the window many times. It was a sign of her profession and an indication of what sort of house this was. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew here, the word for cord is tikvah. You can impress some friends with that later this week. Tikvah means cord. And there's actually a literary pun going on here. You see, depending on the context, this word, tikvah, can mean rope. But in a different context, this same word can mean hope. The word can either mean rope or hope, depending on the context. See, for Rahab, the rope that symbolized her shame would now be transformed into a symbol of her hope. What used to be a calling card was now her hope for rescue. See, the plan is set. The spies escape, they get back to their people and they tell them all that's happened. How God had gone before them, had prepared this woman to save them, to provide safety in the unlikely house of a new sister of the faith. Imagine the conversations going on. Wait, a Canaanite believes in God? Imagine what had been going on. And the Bible says that when Joshua heard the news, he knew that the Lord was with them. That even in the smallest details, God had gone before them. And he had confidence now that God would ultimately give them victory. Now let's quickly jump over to chapter 6 to see her redemption. Now I'll summarize chapters 3 through 5. If you read ahead, you'll see that the Israelites had to cross over the Jordan River. The only problem is the Jordan River was in flood season. So to ford the river to go across would have been dangerous and disastrous. Anyone ever played Oregon Trail, tried to get across the river and lost your whole family? Yeah, I grew up doing that in elementary school. That's what's going on here. It's dangerous. They can't get through. And so yet God provides another miracle. He causes the water to dry up. He basically makes a dam on one side, and it causes the water to dry up, and they're able to walk across. Now, if you're thinking, you're going, wait a minute, hasn't something like this happened before? And it has. It happened to their parents before with the Red Sea. and So now the people, think about what that does to buoy and anchor their faith. They know God is with us. He's doing the same things that he did with our parents' generation. God is with Joshua just like he was with Moses. And before they cross over, they celebrate the Passover meal. Now, if you remember, the Passover was something that their parents had celebrated in in Egypt. If you remember, it was the night of that 10th plague, that final plague, the death of the firstborn, the one that would finally break Pharaoh's pride. It's the one that broke through his hardening. And Israel was told, listen, on this night, the angel of death is going to pass through Egypt, and it's going to take the life of every firstborn son without exception. Just because you're an Israelite, you do not get a pass. The only way to escape death, the only way for death to pass over was to mark your house with the blood of a lamb. And so every home who by faith had that scarlet marker, death would pass over. Every home without the marker, the firstborn son died. In the morning, everyone woke up. You either had a dead lamb or a dead son. That was it. Kind of reminds you of that scarlet rope, doesn't it? You see that coming back up, that her house was marked for salvation so that death would pass over. And then the Bible tells us that famous story, the battle of Jericho. On day one of the battle, they show up, they march around the city, and they leave. Imagine the tension. Imagine the guards on the top of the ramparts getting ready for battle. The people show up. They've got no weapons. They march around your city, and then they leave. Everyone's on edge, waiting for something to happen. They come. They march. No words, no ladders, no weapons, no battering rams, no nothing. Just marching, and then they leave. They do this on a second day, a third day, a fourth day. They do this for six straight days. Then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times, and during that seventh march, the priests uh, sound the trumpets, and the people shout, Hosanna, and the walls come crashing down. The siege begins. Now look what it says in chapter 6, verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, now go. Go. Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, just as you swore her. Verse 24, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, if you remember from chapter 2 and verse 15, Rahab's house was connected to the wall. In fact, her house was built into the wall. So how did the walls come crashing down, but her house remained intact? And if you're thinking, I bet God had something to do with that. You'd be right. God protected her house from crashing down. We see here God's sovereignty over the bricks as they crash down. He is the sovereign architect and engineer who knows which beams to destroy and which to leave intact. Every brick, every stone, every timber cracks and falls exactly and precisely where he intends. And they show up to her house. They see the marker. They return and they make good on their promise. And that day Rahab and all her family left behind their heritage. They left behind their home, and they were adopted into a new family. The Bible tells us that later Rahab would marry an Israelite man named Salmon. And Matthew 1, 5 through 6 says that Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. This woman who was a quintessential outsider, a lowly outcast Canaanite prostitute becomes an insider of the highest kind. She is in the royal line of Jesus. Her, hist- her, her redemption story is of the first order. Not only is her life redeemed, not only does she get a second chance, but her, her, her legacy Goes beyond her wildest imagination. She becomes a daughter of God and even becomes a great great grandmother of Jesus Christ. So you may be thinking, okay, how is this an Advent sermon? Aren't we supposed to be hearing about the chorus of angels that visit the shepherds out in the field? And what about the wise men who bring gifts to the newborn king? What about Mary and Joseph? I want to hear their story, how they. Give birth to Christ and put him in a manger. And all of that is good and well. But none of that happens without God taking these seemingly hopeless stories and writing these beautiful redemption stories. There's a legacy before we get to Luke and Mark and the Advent story. So here's a couple takeaways as we consider the implications for Rahab's story in our lives. The first one is this. Christ has come to make outsiders insiders. That's what he does. This whole story is an unlikely story. The spies find in Rahab an unlikely ally. Rahab herself is an unlikely convert. And they win their victory against Jericho in an unlikely manner. Eva Bleeker, who comments on this story, writes this. She says, with her confession, she's talking about Rahab, With her confession of faith included in the story, we have proof that anyone, even the most unlikely, can believe. And the one who believes shall be rescued. With Rahab in the story, we see that God inspires belief in every category of people and that he honors that belief. Rahab, like all of the other mothers of Jesus in our Advent series, are outsiders who become insiders. The fact that their names are even mentioned in the genealogy is shocking. In an ancient patriarchal society, women never make the list, let alone five of them. They're gender outsiders in their culture. And when you look further into their lives, you find that three of them are Gentiles, unclean nations who who aren't even able to go into the temple to worship God. They would have been racial outsiders as well. And when you look into their lives, you'll find all of them are surrounded by scandal, sexual taboos, and abuse in its many forms. Dysfunction, disorder, and dismissal characterized every one of their lives. They're moral outsiders, gender outsiders, racial outsiders, cultural outsiders. And that's precisely the people that God used to bring about the birth of his son. He takes outsiders, makes them insiders, and makes them family. Those in our society that, that, that uh, they want to exclude, God is in the business of including. That's good news for you and me. If you find in yourself this, this, whatever it may be, you feel like you're an outsider, the good news of Advent is join the family. He's in the business of making outsiders insiders. Number two. Christ has come to give you a new identity. Simply put, your past does not determine your future. I love in the genealogy of Matthew that he doesn't say Rahab the prostitute. Did you notice that? In Christ, that's not her name, nor is it her identity anymore. She's no longer defined that way anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not remembered, right? History, our histories don't go away when we become a Christian. They're still in our past. Our past is still our past. But friends, listen, it doesn't have to define you anymore. It doesn't have to have the final word on you anymore. It's true, the writer of James in Hebrews remembers Rahab's past, but how is she defined? Not by her old profession, but by her great faith. And she's given to us as an example of faith and as a demonstration of God's glory and his grace. So what is that word after your name that defines you? Maybe that word haunts you. Do you feel like an outsider? Do you feel like an outcast? Do you feel like maybe your life is too far gone? You think, God wouldn't want me. There's no way. Maybe you think, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. But friend, let me tell you, you don't know what I've done. I have a past too. And the Bible's full of people with words after their last name. You've got the Apostle Paul. You know what's after his last name? Murderer. Father Abraham. You know what he was? A liar. That kid lied everywhere he went. King David, an adulterer and add murderer to that one. Prophet Moses, he was a coward. When you read about his life at the early stages, he was a coward. Yet in Christ All of those words can become your history, not your identity. With God, it doesn't matter who you were. What matters is who are you becoming? Romans 1.16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone, everyone who believes. See, Rahab is ultimately remembered for her bravery and her faith, not her harlotry, not for sleeping with men, but for trusting in God. She was blessed with a good husband and became a foremother to Jesus, not because she deserved it, no, 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 but because God was faithful and extended grace to her. See, none of us deserve it. That's the point. That's the thing about grace. It goes to the undeserving and the ill-deserving. That frees us to move past our past and allow God's forgiveness to forgive us and that's when we can actually start to forgive ourselves as well. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore and now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Full stop. There's no caveats. No condemnation. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There's this principle at work in our world that clean things become unclean by contact with unclean things, right? Think about it. If you take this pure white linen cloth and you put it in the mud, what happens? It gets dirty. The mud doesn't get clean by the clean cloth. But that's what Christ does. He turns this principle on its head. His holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by your um, unholiness and by contact with us. Rather, His holiness imparts and impacts us by His contact. See, when we come to him, regardless of who you are, what you think you've done, no matter how morally stained you think you are, no matter how deep the scarlet thread goes in your life, no matter who you are and what you've done, he can make you clean. Isaiah 1.18 says this, though your skins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. We don't have to bear the stain of our sin any longer. We don't have to wear the shame of our sin anymore. We can be pure like fresh snow. And when that happens, you have a new identity and a new trajectory. Rahab's story is certainly an example of faith that can inspire us today. But friends, let me tell you this. The main point of this story is not to follow her example. The main point of this story and all the stories we're gonna talk about in this Advent series is not telling you what you should do, but it's telling you what God has done. It's news. It's history. It's what he's done It's come and see what God has done, the light of the world given for you and me. See, we don't chart our own path of salvation. God had to come and save us, and that's what Advent is all about. God coming to be with us, to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised for us. Let me pray.